Romans chapter 15, 1 through 7, in your pew Bibles, that's page 949. Let's read God's Word together. We who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good to build him up, for Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction that through the endurance and through the encouragement of the scripture, we might have hope. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another and in accord with Christ Jesus, that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. All right, thank you, John. You know, it's awesome as a youth pastor when you see people that were kids in your youth ministry, and in his particular case, a very troublesome kid, one of my worst I've ever had, <laughs> that the Lord gets a hold of in such a powerful way that he's serving the Lord today. It just gives hope to, to youth pastors all over the world and to parents because we have a similar experience in parenting. So honestly, I love that young man, and um, I'm so thankful for what the, God, what the Lord's done in his life and is doing in his family as well. Well, I don't have a very long introduction for you, and in fact, I may not even have an introduction if I don't find my notes. Um, there we go. And, but I do want to get us going on the right path, and then we're going to really dig into this. So what makes a family great? I want you to think about that. What makes a family great? Maybe your nuclear family. Or, as this sermon is really tilting toward and this series called The Heart of a Family, what makes a church family great? What makes a church family one where you really want to be part of it? Well, that's really the purpose of this sermon series, and we saw last week, it's a willingness to forgive. And if you missed that sermon, then I really would encourage you to go back. It really launched this series, and I think it's um, one that you want to be able to have in your heart. But today is, we're leaving, we're leaving forgiveness. Today, we're actually going to a bit of a cousin of forgiveness called harmony of all words, and it is a biblical word. Harmony makes a family great, but what is harmony? Well, let me initially define it before we really dig into this. Harmony, and I want you to hear this, harmony is the common cause that motivates very different people to love to be together. Harmony is the common cause that motivates very different people to love to be together. We're gonna unpack that, but let's take it from a musical perspective for a second. So in music, harmony, well, you can't have it if everybody is singing the same note. Well, you know that. Wow, that was really not very profound. Well, it really wasn't meant to be, but it's meant to be getting our minds thinking. You've got to have people singing the different notes if you're going to have harmony. But here's what you've got to have. You've got to have people singing different notes at the same time, but now listen, centered around the same melody. How do you sing this, the different notes in a body of Christ called the family, in your earthly families, how do you have people that can sing different notes 
at the same time, centered around one melody. Well, listen, it's going to be a very dull family and really a very dull church if everyone is always the same as everybody else. And so you got to have differences. But those differences, while they can bring a richness to your family, you know as well as I do in our own families, those differences can bring disharmony because you're not centered on the melody. Now here's what we're gonna see, and then my introduction's done, and we're gonna get really rolling. Here's what we're gonna see today. What must we do if we're gonna have harmony in our family? It applies to your nuclear family and to the church family. What must we do if we're gonna have harmony? Secondly, what's the, mo- what's the example that can motivate us to pursue and stay in harmony? And third, and very importantly, what's the power that's available to us to help very different people sing the same melody. Here we go. Number one, what do we have to do if we're going to be in harmony? Here we go. It's Romans chapter 15. You've got to have your Bibles open. There's one in the pew in front of you if you don't have yours with you. Romans 15, it's in the New Testament. Find Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and you're going to get to Romans extremely quickly after that. So here we go. Verse 1 of chapter 15. We who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Now, let me pause for a commercial break for the online audience, okay? Because this is where we tape our and live stream for our online audience. Now, let me look in the camera. Let me say to you online, it is critical that you have your Bible open. So I'm just gonna wait here awkwardly and comfortably until you do, okay? So the Lord tells me all of you've got it open. Get your Bibles open and let's all look in the Bible at the same time. It's the Word of God. It's one, it is the living and active Word of God. So online and here, have your Bibles open because what I'm going to tell you next is that in the original manuscripts of what we have gotten the Bible from, they didn't have chapter headings, and chapter headings actually do a terrible thing in our mind. Because it it makes you think that chapter 15, verse 1, is a brand new thought that Paul, the writer, has. Well, it's not a brand new thought. Actually, he's been building on this thought all the way from chapter 1, but he's really been zeroing in on it from chapter 12. So chapter 15 is really, as you're about to see, a continuation of what he's been saying so powerfully in chapter 14. So we've got to go back to chapter 14. By the way, you know how important this is because I bet you've done this. Haven't you ever walked in on a conversation that was already going and think and assume that you know what they were talking about and you interject your great wisdom into it and then find out, oh my goodness, I really missed the boat. I had no idea what they were talking about. Well, that's what happens if you start at chapter 15, verse 1 without really knowing what Paul has been saying. So I've got to take you back. You might have to flip a page. Maybe you, even, you don't even have to. In my Bible, I don't. Chapter 14, verse 1. Who are the weak? Because if Paul said in our verse, chapter 15, 1, we who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak, who's the weak? 
Well, Paul answers it in chapter 14, 1, the one who is weak in faith. This is a spiritually immature Christian. That's not meant as a derogatory term. Oh, you're so immature in the faith. No, they haven't had time to develop. They haven't had time to get their feet under them, to really grow. The weak are the ones who are weak in faith. Well, who are the strong ones? Who you who are strong? Well, it's those whose faith has had time to mature. And guess what Paul says to the strong? And maybe you're the strong. Maybe you're the mature. Maybe you're not. Maybe you're still weak in your faith and you're developing, but it takes time. Well, the strong people who are mature, look what he says in verse 1, should not quarrel over opinions. Now, I will say something, and I hope that if this unsettles you when I say it, please give me grace. I, I don't mean it to unsettle you, to be honest with you. I don't. But we're not very good at harmony. I mean that by the modern church, and Cornerstone is not an exception. We're not good at it. You know why? Here's what we do, and I'll, you'll understand why at the end of this message. We take opinions on non-essential matters and elevate them to essential matters and it creates discord and disharmony. We all do this. We all do this. And the Lord is correcting this in us, and Rupertus Maldinius, he's the one that actually wrote something that you're very familiar with. He was a German Lutheran pastor. He said this, in essentials, unity, in non-essentials, liberty, freedom, in all things, charity or love. So we take non-essential things and we put them into the wrong category of essential. We take core doctrine truths and then we take things like, well, you ought to wear a mask. No, I'm never going to wear a mask. Or you're not vaccinated. What's wrong with you? Then you're wrong. We take them and we put them into essential categories and then wonder why there's such disharmony among us. I actually had somebody whom I, I really truly love, and I know he loves me very much, heard that I got sick with COVID last Thanksgiving and asked me if I'm vaccinated. Here's what I'm learning. This is literally the only thing I liked about Bill Clinton, and I didn't even like how he applied it. Don't ask, don't tell, okay? I don't like it where he took it into the military, but in this case, I kind of think it's pretty smart. I don't talk about vaccinations with people unless they really need to know a biblical approach to it. So he said to me, are you vaccinated? You had COVID, are you vaccinated? I go, no, I wasn't, and I'm not. He goes, you know what? Maybe you should just die then. I go, what? This is around Christmas. We're supposed to act like we love each other. That was a joke. <laughs> now listen, he's a good friend of mine. I know he's not wishing for my death, but what he's expressing there is his anger at people who won't get vaccinated. Maybe you share it. Or maybe you share from the other perspective. Do you understand what I'm saying? We take non-essential issues and we put them into essential categories and it creates disharmony. 
and we all do it. Now, here's what's going on in the Church of Rome. This is a book called Romans, and it's written to the church at Rome. The churches in Rome were made up of Jews and Gentiles, slaves and masters, rich and poor, strong and weak, and with all these different groups came differences that were producing tensions, and the weak were immature believers, and look at verse 2 in chapter 14. They're insisting that there are kosher foods and unkosher foods. There are foods that you can eat, and some, if you do eat them, you will be spiritually contaminated. You will lose your fellowship with God, and then they insisted in verse 5 that you got to worship like the old Hebrew people of God. You got to worship on Saturday. That's the only acceptable day to worship. You see, the weak were the undeveloped in faith, the strong were the mature in faith, but both groups were doing an incredibly terrible thing, and you do it, and I do it. And it's something that the gospel must eradicate. I'm gonna show you what it is, and watch how often it's repeated. Verse three, they were passing judgment. Look at chapter four, verse five, or verse four, they were passing judgment. Look at chapter 14, verse 10, they were passing judgment. Look at verse 13, they were passing judgment. Look at verse 22, they're passing judgment. Do you know what it means to pass judgment? It means that you have elevated yourself to a lofty perch, and you now have the justification to pronounce to all the lowly people who are in need of your wisdom, you look down at your nose, and you tell them what is right and what is wrong. That's what it means to pass judgment. See, one group looked down their nose at the other because they were legalistic. The other group is looking down on the other for their liberal ways. The weak would say of the strong, man, you are such a sinner. You're using your freedom for evil. And the strong were saying of the weak, your opinion, your opinion is ridiculous. You gotta grow up. And until you do, don't even come near me. This is what's happening that creates that created the disharmony in these churches. So Paul says to both groups, look at verse 13 of chapter 14, decide never to put a stumbling block or hindrance in the way of a brother. That's what, it, that's what you're doing when you're passing judgment. Or else, verse 15, you are no longer walking in love. Now, do you see why Paul begins chapter 15 the way he did? He is explaining how to have harmony in a church where there's a lot of different people. If you're mature in your faith, he says, verse one, now we're in our passage, we're gonna move forward. If you're mature in your faith, if you are strong, look what he says, you have an obligation. You have a debt. You actually owe it to bear with the failings of the weak. You're mature. You know this does not belong in the essential category. This is your opinion. But you're not gonna lord it over other people. You're gonna say it's my opinion, and if you choose to not agree, it's okay. Because it's a non-essential. See, the spiritually strong and that's a lot of you. It's not every one of you. The spiritually strong owe it to the weak to be patient and bear with their struggles. 
It's like the older sibling putting up with the annoying younger sibling. Bear up with them. Love them. They're going to grow up. They're going to get stronger. They're going to get wiser. They're going to get more solid in their faith. But you can actually help them. And that is what you must do. You see, otherwise, we live as if the spiritually weak owe it to us. And look what we'll do in that verse. We will please ourselves. Now, I don't know what you know about that phrase, please ourselves. Paul's going to elaborate on that. He writes that every Christian, verse 2, strong or weak, should please his neighbor for his good to build him up. I don't know what you know about pleasing others or pleasing yourself, what that word actually means in the Greek language, but I can explain it through illustration. And here's what it means as you illustrate it. It might be a wife or a girlfriend who makes for her loved one an elaborate feast, an elaborate dinner to celebrate their love. And she asks him afterwards, are you pleased? Or are you satisfied? Was it agreeable to you? There's the word. That's what pleased means. It means agreeable. Or you might be on a hike, and you come up over a vista, and there below you is a lush green valley that is pleasing to your eyes. You see, the word pleasing means something that you find agreeable, and it stirs up your emotions. If we're to enjoy harmony in the church, we must live in a way, each of us, that others find agreeable, pleasing, but not as people pleasers. Now, I'm going to tell you something, and this might be some of you. People pleasers are some of the most selfish people you will ever meet on the earth. And what is so disastrous about them is they look anything but selfish. They look like servants. They look like they're so kind. They look like they're so loving. They look like they just want everybody to be happy. But I'll tell you why they want everybody to be happy. Because it determines their own inner sense of value and worth and equilibrium. They are self-worshippers. See, this is not a call to be a people pleaser. One that finds your self-esteem and your self-worth hinged on whether people love you, and all of a sudden you find that you're not able to really say what you want to say to people. You're not really able to be who you really want to be or give what people really need to hear. You're living in an artificial existence, and it's absolutely draining. And it always, now listen, this is true. This is true, and I've counseled a whole lot of people-pleasers. People-pleasers always end up Toxic. Always. Because they've got to bottle it up. They've got to internalize it. And it begins to twist them internally because nobody ever cares about them enough for them to think they should. See, people-pleasers are about their own good, their own self-worth, their own approval being built up. That's not what Paul has in mind. No, Paul has something else in mind. If you live to please others, listen, you are building them up. It is for their good. So Christian, can you imagine your earthly family? And can you imagine your church family made up of members who live for the good of others? 
imagine what that would look like. Can you imagine that here at Cornerstone, we will not, we absolutely refuse to pass judgment on one another. We live as if we owe each other a debt of love and work to build each other up in faith that will not, we will not bring a non-essential matter, an opinion, to the level of a core doctrine where you do need to have unity, but down here you can have diversity. And in fact, it's diversity here that brings the discordant notes that all wrap around one melody that create such harmony. You see, you don't always think like I do, right? That's a good thing. And I don't always think like you do, and that's a good thing. But it's not a good thing if it's an essential doctrine of the faith. By the way, we saw that we had 23 people. We'll be doing our next membership class, hopefully in the spring, Lord willing. And we would invite you, if you're not a member at Cornerstone, what are you waiting for? The water's warm. Come on in. But listen, when you do go through membership, you're going to find we have core doctrines. And you need to agree with them. Or you're not going to be a member. And that's not because we don't love you. It's because we love our church family actually more than we love each individual. We are jealous for unity, and it's not always happening. We got to guard our unity. The way you do that is in the core doctrine, but the way you guard your harmony is in the non-essentials. It's okay to have different opinions. In fact, it brings beauty. Now watch what happens. We've got an example that should motivate us to stay in harmony. There's a lot of scholars. Let me give you a little background. A lot of scholars who believe that the early church in Rome failed terribly. Failed terribly. Rivalry was fierce. In fact, did you know that there were districts in Rome? We've got the West Ward. We've got downtown. We've got College Hill, we've got Forks, we've got Southside, we've got districts here. Well, Rome did the same thing. Their city was made up of districts. And there were districts where the wealthy lived, and there were districts where the middle-aged or middle-income people lived, and there were districts where the very utter poor lived. And guess what? The Christians and the Roman Empire in Rome almost always lived in the poorest district. It was that district that historians said that that great fire that burned so much of Rome began. Most believe, or many believe, it was planted. And it was planted, they think, and they believe, by Nero himself, the emperor, because it justified the, the war he unleashed on the church. It became illegal to be a Christian in the Roman Empire. In fact, Nero had all of these outdoor parties in all of his massive courtyards. He would take Christians, he would dip them in pitch, and he would put them, they would put them on poles all around his garden, which were massive, and then when the, when the people arrived at night and it was time to have a festival party, he would light the Christians on fire and they would burn to death, providing the light for his enjoyment. You know what the early church was doing? Because of the factions, because of the dissent, because of the disharmony, Christians would report Christians to the Roman state, and they would be taken, and they would be martyred. You see, most believe the Roman church failed terribly. 
I'm going to tell you about a, a LifeWay research done in 2017. It showed, now listen, some of you are in this demographic. You need to hear this. 66% of people aged 23 through 30, after they were 18 years old, dropped out of the church. You know why they dropped out of the church? They reported why. The top reasons were people in the church are divisive and judgmental, and they fight. Do you see the need for harmony in your earthly family, harmony in your church family? We must master this, but I'm gonna say it again. Christians can treat Christians terribly. We can. The truth is, though, we have the power to treat each other well, better than the world can treat people, and we've got the power of God in us to, quote, bear with the failings of the weak instead of judging them. We have the Spirit of Christ in us to have different opinions, yet treat each other with kindness and dignity and, well, love. And we have the greatest example of the strongest person who has ever lived to motivate us, Look at verse 3. For Christ did not please himself. But as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. That's a quotation from the Old Testament. Jesus said, he said in John 6, I have come down from heaven. I didn't come down to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. I don't live to please myself. I don't find myself living in where I am comfortable and agreeable to what I want. No, I am living first to please my Father, and secondly, to love and find agreeableness with you. Now, I want to just say something really quickly, and I, this has really grown in me uh, for a few years now, and I, I want our church to be different from so many churches. And if you want to follow up with me on this personally, I would invite you to do that. Please, let's do that. Let's have a discussion. It doesn't need to be a debate. Listen, Christian friend, friends, brothers and sisters, don't attack other Christian brothers and sisters. Don't do that. Don't do that. You've got to grow up. You're showing that you're weak in your faith because your heavenly Father does not speak like that. Should you brazenly and courageously expose those who are not Christians, who are false teachers, who are masquerading as wolves in sheep clothing? Yes, but you better be very, very sure that that's really a false teacher or you will be dealt with by God because he died for that person. That's his child. Oh, man, I would warn you, be very careful to attack a Christian. And if you have not sat down personally with them, you should probably stay silent. Jesus said again, I always do things that are pleasing to him. The eye of Christ was never first and foremost on himself, but on his father and others. He lived for the sake of others. Here's what he said. One of my, my favorite verses in the Bible. For even the Son of Man did not come or actually, I misquoted my favorite verse in the Bible. Isn't that pathetic? For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. This is how Jesus lived. The compass needle was always pointing away. 
But if you're not bearing with the failings of the weak, if you want to please yourself, if you're not building others up and walking in love and passing judgment, your compass needle, friend, it is on you and you alone. It's got to swing. And Jesus shows us how. Now, I want to say this before I go to the next verse. If you're truly listening to this sermon, I know this sounds brash. I don't mean it to. But if you're truly listening to this sermon, friends, you ought to be realizing you are doomed. You are doomed because you will fail in your own power. You cannot live harmoniously in your flesh. You're doomed. You ought to be crying out, and I ought to be crying out, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death, like the apostle Paul did earlier in this book. But I'm going to show you the power that's available to you and me to live in harmony. Point number three, the power available to help us. The power of the gospel is such that, listen, it tra- this is actually the most fun part of this sermon, okay? So I hope you really listen. The gospel transforms us from the inside out. Now, now listen, you go, and I'm, I think a lot of you probably do, pick up your, your self-help book and go to your counselor that, that is not a Christian, Okay? And learn the techniques that the world has to offer. All of those three, if the self-help books don't lead you to Christ, all three of them are trying to work from the outside in. And it can only get so deep. In neuroscience, that's all the rage right now in counseling. It can only get as deep as your body, your brain, and your central nervous system. Where they teach all your problems, or most of them arise. If you've got cognitive rational counseling, they're going to get to your thoughts. It's only the gospel that begins on the inside of you. It begins to transform your entire life. Now, here's what's so fun. Until God gets down in your heart, the root of who you are, the most inner being you possess, your heart, until it gets down there, now watch, listen, and it turns vertical between you and God, then transformation will elude you. Oh, you can cope. You can manage. You can trade idols. You can temporarily get some help, a reprieve, but you cannot be transformed in your whole self until God gets his truth down to the innermost being of who you are, and it turns vertical. Because every one of our sin problems is most fundamentally a problem we have with God. If you don't realize that yet, then learn it. That's how you change. That's how the gospel changes. does it in two ways. One, the power of God's word. Do you love God's word? Do you love God's word? Listen, if I told you that the property where you live, I know for a fact that there are millions of dollars worth of gold under that ground. I know what you're going to do. I know what I would do. You're going to dig. If I tell you that your life can be changed in the depths of God's word as it gets into your inner being, why are you not digging? 
Why are you not pleading with God? Free, free me, transform me, get into the word of God, study it, know it, love it, pursue it. You've got to plead with God. Give me a holy fire for your word. It is living and active. It's how I change. And you know what it does? Well, look at verse 4. For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction that through endurance and through the encouragement of the Scriptures, we might have hope. Don't you know what hope is biblically? Biblical hope is faith or confidence for your future because you know that God has never let you down and he never will. That's what hope is. Now listen, think through this. Hope even in the world is about the future. Boy, I really hope the weather warms up because we want to get together outside as a family next weekend. Well, it's, you're not talking about today. You're talking about an event coming up in a few days, and you're hoping the weather changes. Every use of the word hope is about the future. See, if you want to have faith and confidence in your future, then you've got to know that the God of your past has never, ever let you down. He's not even capable of letting you down. And that God of the rearview mirror will be the God of your front window and you can drive right to them in confidence. Now, watch this, because the number one reason that people go into counseling today is anxiety. And I deal with it all the time and people in this church. See, anxiety is the exact opposite, but it's also about your future. Anxiety is not about last week. It's not about this moment, no. It's about moments that are to come. It is fear for your future. You don't have any confidence for your future. Why? I'm gonna tell you why, Christian, because you don't have any confidence in God, the God of your past. You think he let you down. And until the word of God can go down so deep and turn you vertical to him and show you, I've never let you down, my child. I've never abandoned you. I've never brought anything but good to you. Your problem is a misperception. You don't believe that. Therefore, out the front window of your car, you see doom and gloom and uncertainty at every moment. No wonder you have anxiety. See, it's the power of God's word. And it must be unleashed in your heart, friends. It's time to plead with God to light a fire for his word because you cannot transform without it. But he says one more thing. Number two, the power of his grace. Look at verse five. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another. If you've got the New Testament, unfortunately, or the, um, the NIV, unfortunately, it does a terrible job of translating this because it says unity. That's not what this word is. Unity is not the same as harmony. Unity is where you must gather like-mindedly around core doctrines. Incredibly important. Harmony is how you can still love each other even when you're not in core doctrines. How can you love each other in different opinions? May he grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Christ Jesus that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And look at the words, this is so important. May he grant, that word means give. You, you can't, you see, harmony, listen, harmony is not something you and I can fabricate. We can't produce it off an assembly line. 
And you could walk out of here if I just never got to point number three. And I said, well, here's what we've got to do. We've got to live in harmony. And here's our example. And it's very motivating. This is how Jesus lived. Now leave and go do this. That would be the worst preaching ever. Because you're going to try to do what you cannot do in your flesh. Your own power cannot do this. If God does not give you harmony, you cannot live it. Do you see why this is so important? You should be asking for it. You should be pleading to God, give me a heart that loves harmony. See, he enables us to live in such Harmony, where believers' hearts are for each other, with an attitude for each other, and a desire ultimately for the same. Now, I learned something early on in my marriage. This is, it's funny, by the way, in all the counseling that I've done since, that I have found that a lot of people shared this same struggle. That really surprised me. Denise and I, we would, every once in a while, say, hey, let's go out to eat for dinner. We'd get in the car, and I'd start it up, and I would turn, inevitably, turn to her and go, where do you want to go? See, a lot of you are just as terrible as we are. And she would say, whatever, I don't care. I'll go anywhere you want to go. I don't want the burden of that risk. I don't want to choose something that you're not going to be happy about, and then I'll be punished for the rest of the night. Not that she would do that, but you always feel that way. So I would say, no, 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 really, where do you want to go? And she'd say, honey, I don't really care. I'll eat anything. I'm hungry. Where do you want to go? And we would go back and forth. We even one time in Georgia turned off the car, so angry with each other, never even left our driveway, went in and ate cereal. That's how bad it was. We had to learn. For us, it works, okay? Here's three places that I think would be really good to go. You choose which one of the three you'd like. That works for us. I don't know what works for you. But listen, harmony, when you've got differences and opinions, is incredibly difficult. You see, but the problem is this. The goal was not the dinner, and the goal was not the restaurant. The goal was our marriage. And we lost track of the goal. Now, you see, the differing opinions that we all have will not lead to disharmony when our ultimate goal is the melody. Now, you might be thinking, well, the melody is obviously Jesus. No, it's not. No, it's not. He's the means. He's the power. He enlightens our hearts. He pulses his life force in our hearts so that we want to do what we ought to do, okay? That's the, that's the means of it, but that's not the melody. I'll tell you the melody. It's with one voice glorify God. Now, friends, if that motivates you to glorify God and that motivates me, there is no way that a difference in opinion is going to lead to disharmony. No, in fact, our differences are what's creating harmony when we're both around the melody of glorifying God. Now, I have to tell you this because a lot of people don't understand it. What's it mean to glorify God? Now, very interestingly, and I'll give you an example, two of them, one from modern day culture. You know what the word glory means? Well, I'll tell you what it means tell you what it means from a cultural perspective. Haven't you heard of the word doxing? It's a terrible thing. It's when you're online and you uncover secret information about somebody else and reveal it to the whole world. That's what it means to be doxed. 
You see it terribly happening. Please don't ever do it. But you see it happening. But do you not understand? The word glory is doxa. And when we glorify God, we are uncovering God's perfections. We are revealing God's perfections so that everybody can see. And we're spreading it as far as we can. Well, the other way that you can know what this means is with a Navy diver. Divers in the Navy are usually given doxalites watches, excuse me, rather, which going down into the depths of the darkness of the ocean lights up. You can see the time. You can see the information you need to have available. Well, that's what it means. It's to live in such a way as we light up God so people can see his perfection. It's not just saying the words, well, I'm going to glorify God. Are you kidding me? You can be a hypocrite and do anything but glorify God. It's living in such a way that you bring glory to God, revealing his his divine excellencies. See, harmony in the family, whether it's your own or the church, shows everyone how great and worthy of praise our God is, and it enables such different people to love each other. Now listen, here's what I'm going to say as I conclude. If I want to glorify God, if that's the single-minded goal that is pulsing in my heart, that's the melody, then you can sing your tune. You can have your opinion. You can think differently than me with masks. You can think differently with me than vaccines. It's not going to create disharmony because we want to glorify God. Now, I'm going to tell you the reverse of that. If you are in disharmony, as true as for me as it is for you, you're not, you're not singing to the melody. You're pleasing yourself, and you're building yourself up. And that's what creates disharmony. Now, let me conclude with verse 7, and it's more interesting than maybe you know. Here's his final instruction. Welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. Here we go again with the glory of God. But that word welcome literally means, it's a Greek word, to open up your friendship circle and let people in. You got to invite them in. You can't have a wall. That is not redemptive. No, you got to have a boundary. You can't be friends with everybody because then you're friends with nobody. But you got to have friends, but the willingness to see somebody and say, come on in. To my friendship. You see, that's what sets the concrete of harmony. That's what shapes it. That's what makes it so beautiful. We can sing together because we're friends. But before, you're so distant that I don't even really like you. And I don't really agree with much of anything that you're saying. But guess what? The more I love you and the more you love me, those differences and the tensions of it dissolve. We begin walking in love, and I can see you, who, you for your worth and for who you are. I'm not trying to get you to please me or I'm a people pleaser. No, I want to glorify God, and you do too. And all of a sudden, our different voices are attuned to the same melody and we've got harmony and it's beautiful and the world is going to see God. That's the importance of harmony.
Now let's end with this. Let's be really, really honest. Are you bearing with the failings of the weak? I'm telling you, our church is not good at this. And you might be sitting there going, well, our pastor's not good at this. And I can accept that. I'm all right with that. But we better learn together how to love. And we better experience together that it's okay if we have differences of opinions, as long as they are non-essentials. And in fact, it's those differences that when sung to the one melody, make this church great. And the same is true for your family. Amen? Let's pray. Father, thank you. As Pastor Kyle comes up here, and um, Lord, as the worship team is going to close us with one more song, Lord, I pray, Father, that we would learn this lesson. That's my simple prayer. God, burst it forth in our hearts. Let us be a church that learns how to sing together. And it's okay. It's okay if we sing different parts. But we've got to be wrapped around the right melody. And that melody is to bring glory to our great God, that we would live in such a way as we reveal the excellencies and the perfections of our God. Would you help us with that? Lord, you showed us what we got to do. You showed us what we must learn to do to be in harmony. And then you gave us the best example that's ever been seen in Jesus. Then you showed us the word of God and the grace of God are more than enough to make us the harmonious family of God. That's the heart of a family. Lord, let us learn that well. In Jesus' name, amen.